So hopefully that helps us out just a little bit. Thank you all for coming to this talk on sexuality. I can tell by the size of the crowd um, that you guys have a little bit of interest in this whole topic. Uh, just really quickly, a little bit about me. I'm from Rochester, New York. Is anybody from upstate New York? Thank you, there's like four of us. That's great, hey, there we go in the back, wonderful. Uh, I Oh, there we are over there too. I went to Kingdom Bound. I don't know if many know of Kingdom Bound Music Festival, okay. They, really, I didn't hire these two, I promise you. Um, but I went to Kingdom Bound for probably 12, 13 years, so I love music festivals, but I have never been to creation. I've just heard about it. So really happy that I get to be there, or get to be here. And uh, I spent a lot of my time, pretty much my full-time life, is helping people wrestle with questions about God, questions about Christianity. How do you know God exists? Why do I need God? I'm fine. My life is good. I'm intelligent. I've got, I go to a great university. Why do I need God? Is there evidence for the Bible? Is there evidence for the resurrection? So I help people who are struggling to know whether or not Christianity is true and help them see why I think Christianity is true. And I think these are good questions to ask. Nobody in here or really on the planet should believe anything because somebody hands them a book and says, believe it. You don't follow your life over something just because somebody says, here, believe it. You want to think a little bit deeper than that. And so I welcome questions. I welcome when people challenge me. I welcome when people say, I don't think I buy this Christianity thing. I say, great, tell me why. And so that is what I spend a lot of my time doing. And so I'm actually gonna extend to you guys at the end of this time today, an opportunity for question and answer. I know we don't usually do that at creation. Usually you just hear a talk and then you leave. And you can leave, that's okay. But I just want to extend to you guys a talk or an opportunity to ask a question. Because I know this is a big topic. Tomorrow I'm speaking on, at, the, at um, I think it's W1, on if God exists, why is he not more obvious? Show yourself to me, God, if you want us to know you. It's a big question I get. But today I'm dealing with this whole issue of sexuality because some people are like, look, even if God exists, I don't think I want him because I don't know if I like what Christianity has to say about this whole issue. This isn't an issue that just affects you. As I've been reading about some other things surrounding this, I will leave the countries unnamed, but there are certain wealthy countries in this world that will say to poor countries in this world, if you don't change your position on specifically homosexuality, specifically transgender, gender identities, all of these things, if you don't change your position, we will withhold our money that we give you to help your poor country out. This is not just a question for everybody here. It's a question that our country is wrestling with so much so that we are saying to people, hey, you might want to consider holding to our beliefs or it's going to seriously impact your country. And so what I want to do today is give you a little bit of a background, kind of talk a little bit about how our country got here and really not just America, but how different parts of the world even got to this point. And what does that mean for a Christian? How do we process through some of these things as a Christian? How does God understand these things? Marriage, love, sex, romantic relationships, all of these things. And so hang with me. I would love to hear your questions at the end, but let's go ahead and begin and look at our country and look at how it is that we got to a place 40 years from now, or 40 years before, we never were asking, or at least publicly, we weren't dealing with these questions that we are now. So what brought us here? Several things brought us here. Number one, we have this idea of freedom, right? This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. This idea of freedom, that freedom means that I am free from all constraints, I'm free from all rules and all barriers, I should have total, complete freedom to do what I want with me, to act how I want to act, to live how I want to live. That's what freedom means. This country promises me freedom, therefore don't put rules around me. And so going back as far as Immanuel Kant, we have these ideas of freedom from, that we, we want to be free from things, so free from ropes or free from constraints or free from boundaries or barriers. 
But he says we also need to question and ask ourselves, what are we now free for? It's one thing to have freedom. But now that you have freedom, what are you free to do with it? What are you free for? So somebody gives you freedom, what should you do? What ought you do? How then should you live? And how you view the world, how you view religion, how you view what the meaning of life is, what does it mean to be human? All of these things will play a part into how you answer that question. Now that you are free, what are you free to do? And so when we look at this whole topic of sexuality, we need to understand that there are things, mindsets and ideas behind it that have led us to this point. Freedom, our idea of freedom is one of them. But I also, and I won't spend a lot of time on this because it's a much bigger topic, but the sexual revolution, this whole idea that we need to be completely and sexually free, which includes pornography, which includes premarital sex, includes whatever you want, includes nudity. Live how you want to live sexually. Remove these barriers. Remove the things that are holding you back, these old laws, these old traditions, these old religions, and do whatever you want sexually. So we have this sexual revolution which is encourages us to embrace all forms of sexuality, be completely liberated in it. We have this freedom that we don't want any ropes or no Thing, nothing um, binding us to a way we don't want to live. We want to live free. But then we have a third thing. And I think this third thing is also really interesting. I think one of the most beneficial things that you can do if you are an American in this room, and actually even if you are a Canadian, one of the most biggest things I can encourage you to do is to get out of North America. Get a passport. Go see how the rest of the world lives. It's really easy for us to think that the rest of the world functions as we do. Now, my job takes me all over the world. So I go, I've been to Asia, and I've been to, um, well, all around the US, and I've been to Australia. Like, I've, I've, I've gone past just these borders. And one of the things I find very interesting in what we would call the West versus the East, the West would mean countries, it would mean the Americas, and Europe, and Australia, and New Zealand. That's what, we, what, what sociologists would consider to be the West. What's an interesting concept in the West is this idea of individuality. This idea that my life is my life, your life is your life, I do what I want, you do what you want. I'll wait a second for these to go by. I just want my people in the back to still be able to hear, so, <laughs> okay. So we have this idea of individuality. It's my life, I do what I want, okay? So we kind of think in the, in the mindset of what I do has nothing to do with you, okay? The, the problem with that is that everything we do affects somebody else. We live in a little bit of a false perception of individuality. No man is an island. None of us truly live in an independent way from anybody else. Here's just a simple example, okay? I'm driving down the street and a light turns yellow and I'm at the point where maybe I can go through it or maybe I should stop. And I have a car behind me, I'm trying to figure out what to do. So I decide, you know what, let me just be safe and I stop at the light. What have I just done? I have just, by my decision to stop at a red light, something as simple as that, I've impacted the life of the person behind me because now they have to stop at the red light too. Let's say they were on their way to the grocery store. Now, because they have to stop at this red light, spend one minute less, one minute sitting at this red light, now they'll go to the grocery store and they'll do their shopping, they'll go bring their groceries to the register and they're gonna end up with a different person maybe than they would have had had they got there a minute earlier. Now they're gonna have a different conversation than they would have had a few minutes earlier a different conversation with the person who's ringing them out. In other words, you see how just something as simple as stopping at a red light impacts the life of the person behind me. We do not live in an individual culture. What you are an individual world, what you do does impact everybody else. 
And see, if you go to the east, that's the Western mindset. You go to the east, the east is kind of is, uh, Asia and the Middle East. There, everything is communal. Everything you do impacts somebody else. It is, you are living in a way to bring honor to your family. And if you do something disgraceful, you haven't just disgraced yourself, you have disgraced your entire family. So mental health, depression, schizophrenia, these things are, are very hush-hush in these cultures because if you have one of these things, that means that something's wrong with not just you but your whole family. It's shameful for your whole family. This is why many of you may have heard of something called honor killings. Honor killings happen uh, generally in the Middle East, but when a woman is raped, oftentimes what the family will do is they will kill the woman for the rape. It's called an honor killing. Now to us in the, in the West, US, Canada, the Americas in general, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, to us in the West, that seems so silly. Why would you blame her for what somebody else did? But this is because we don't understand communal cultures. And in a communal culture, for example, in the Middle East, the, the, the honor of the family is closely tied with the sexual purity of the female. The minute the sexual purity of the female is violated, the entire family is disgraced. And they believe, I don't agree, but they believe the only way to bring honor back to the family is to dispose of the shameful person. Now that may blow your mind, but understand that's how people live and die on a regular basis. So when I say, in an individualist society, I can love who I want, that's, I, I, I'm totally fitting into my individualism, right? The way I understand love is, I love who I want. You love who you want. The way that society would see love is, you love the person that's best for our whole family. Think of arranged marriages. When it comes to behavior, it's, I do what I want. It's my body, it's my life. In an Eastern culture, they say, you do what you want as long as it brings honor to the family. You live in a way that you always think about us. Hello? Okay. Sorry, he was still trying to, he's still trying to fix your volume problem in the back. Um, are you hearing okay? Okay. So, so, what, so that's the way they think in the West versus the East. Okay? Your behavior is always a reflection of us as a family. Who you love is a reflection of us as a family. Your relationships, what job you do, what career you do, it, we are all involved. And it's American individualism, well, Western individualism, that has also played a part into this concept of complete sexual freedom in general. So why do I go through all this? Why do I spend time explaining freedom, what we're freedom, that people wanna be free from certain things and be free to do other things and, and, and individualism versus Western mindset and or Eastern mindset and sexual evolution. Why do I explain these things? Because all of these things play a part into our arguments and our reasons for how we view sexuality today. If you live in an individualistic mindset, you think sexuality is whatever you want it to be. It's all about you. But if individualism is not a reality or a possibility, then maybe we're thinking about things the wrong way. And so what our society has done is it's supported all sorts of new sexual relationships and gender identities. We've moved the bar on sexual freedom so much that so many more things are allowed than they were before. The clothes on women get shorter, if they're even wearing clothes at all, because part of it is, I just, there was just an article that happened, um, I saw maybe last week, where a woman wants to be topless. She wants to have rights to be topless on a beach. Right? So that might be the new thing that's brought now to the public, is why can't I be free to be topless like a man? We advocate for open marriages, which are marriages where the husband and wife are not just sexually intimate with each other, but they can be intimate with whoever they would like to be. 
We advocate for limitless sexual expression, however you want to ex express yourself sexually. And we encourage music that lyrically degrades people, degrades women, talks about what women can, services women can provide for men, how they can make them happy, how they already make men happy. And we encourage it and we bop to it as we go about our day. Because we've moved the line on sexuality. It's just me, I'm singing my song. It's nothing to do with you, does it? Is it really only, only just you? Do you really think that when you turn off that song, that the impact that song has had on you somehow disappears from your mind too? Do we not think that the things that we hear impact how we perceive and understand individuals around us? But here's the crazy thing. As much as we advocate for complete sexual freedom, we really don't believe in it. Wait a minute, Alicia, what are you talking about? You just said people advocate for sexual freedom. People want to live individually and all about them. And now you're saying they don't? We live inconsistent. We say a lot of things we don't mean. We say we believe in sexual freedom, yet we have an issue if a teacher wants to have a relationship with a 13-year-old student. We don't believe in sexual freedom. We have an issue when a woman is raped. We don't believe in sex that's forced. We would have an issue if somebody was, was messing around with a child. And for the most part, adultery is still considered not the best way to have a marriage. In other words, we as a society, not just as individuals, but even on a law, even on a legal level, put boundaries around sex. Everybody has boundaries around sex. This idea of complete sexual freedom isn't true. The question is, is where is your boundary and how did you get that boundary? More importantly, how do you know that boundary is right? How do you know you put that boundary at the right place? Rape is still illegal in all 50 states. Child pornography is still illegal. Sex trafficking is still illegal. Our, even our US government puts boundaries around sexuality. So we really don't believe in sexual freedom, we just say it. And we really don't think it through. Because the reality is, friends, true freedom, it only exists in a system of boundaries. True freedom only exists in a system where there is boundaries and parameters, because parameters give the outside measurement of a, of a way for people to live inside of that. Kind of like the boundary of a circle, which you can live. There's limits so that your freedom doesn't hurt somebody else's life. A really popular, our, one way in which we have really expressed our passion for sexual freedom is through some of these hookup apps, such as Tinder. I'm not gonna ask any of you to raise your hands and tell me how many of you have been on Tinder. But Tinder is what's called the hookup culture, which is kind of funny to me, because I guess I'm old, maybe I'm dating myself, but when we used to say hookup as a teenager, it just meant like we're gonna go hang out later. Like you'd say it's a group of friends, yeah, we'll just hook up later on, we'll see you later on. Now, it means we're gonna have sex. Okay, so what these apps, what these, what these applications, what these apps do essentially, is they tell people, hey, Here's their name, maybe here's their job, or here's their age, and they're willing to sleep with you. So we have this app called Tinder, and, I've, and Vanity Fair did a very interesting article on it recently. Now many of you are probably familiar with Vanity Fair. It is not a, uh, how do we say, a sexually conservative magazine by any means. And they wrote a very interesting article on Tinder and they went around and they interviewed different people that were on Tinder to get their experiences from Tinder. So I wanna read to you what some of the people who are on Tinder are saying about the Tinder experience. Okay, so let me just read to you. One gentleman, Alex, has bragged about, is bragging about his encounters with women. This is what he says. He says, with these dating apps, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls at a bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them. So you could rack up 100 girls you've slept with in a year. Let me keep reading you about 
what our advocation for sexual freedom, where it leads us. Let's keep reading. But Marty, who prefers Hinge to Tinder, is no slouch at racking up girls. He says he slept with 30 to 40 women in the last year. I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win them over. But then they start wanting me to care more and, and I just don't. Well, his friend Alex says, dude, that's not cool. I think to an extent it's kind of sinister because I know that the average girl will think that there's a chance that she can turn the tables. If I were like, hey, I just want to have sex, very few people would want to meet up with you. And then he's like, do you think this culture is misogynistic? But what about the women? I mean, clearly, the men on these apps are looking for women who they can have sex with. And it's very interesting, as you read through the article, many times they, they don't really even know the name. They wake up the next morning, the person's already gone. So they don't even necessarily know the name of the person anymore unless they went back to the app to look it up. Um, so it purely is just for a one-night stand kind of a thing. So of course, there are people who have relationships who form relationships out of Tinder, and I'm not gonna say that never happens. But this is just, let me just continue to read you what the Vanity Fair article says. So let's talk to the women now. They interview women. And the women, obviously, are the ones who are sleeping with this men. So clearly, the women think that there's nothing wrong with sexual freedom like this, right? This is what they say. It seems like the girls don't have any control over the situation. And it shouldn't be like that at all, says Fallon. It's a contest to see who cares less. And guys win a lot at caring less. Amanda says, sex should stem from emotional intimacy. And it's the opposite with us right now. And I think it really is kind of destroying females' self-images, says Fallon. Honestly, I feel like the body doesn't even matter to the guys as long as you're willing, says Reese. It's that bad. But if you say any of this out loud, it's like you're weak. You're not an independent woman. Like you somehow missed the whole memo about third wave feminism. In other words, what she's saying is if I say that actually this isn't good for women, the people are saying, dude, are you not a feminist? You don't believe in women's rights? You don't believe in the empowerment of women? She can't even feel like she can vocalize against it. But clearly people are on Tinder. So there's got to be a redeeming value to having pure sexual freedom. Right? Pure sexual freedom, there's got to be a redeeming value. This has got to be a good thing because people are on it, right? Maybe you get better dating experience. Maybe you meet Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, which has happened. But let's go back to some of the boys for a second. I've gotten numbers on Tinder just by sending emojis, says John, without actually having a conversation. He holds up his phone with its cracked screen to show a Tinder conversation between him and a young woman who provided her number after he offered a series of emojis. Now, was that the kind of woman I potentially want to marry, he asked? Probably not. Probably not, he says. But he's okay to have that relationship with somebody else's wife, future wife. But that's not the kind of woman that he meets that he actually would want to marry. So then how is the sexual freedom good? The men don't even want to marry these girls. The girls feel used. The girls feel like it messes with their self-image. But sexual freedom is supposed to be the way, that, the way forward. We're supposed to modernize ourselves into 2018. Then why are people happy? And then when you introduce Christianity and you talk about a God who puts boundaries around romantic love and sexuality, we say, you're restrictive. But maybe that's because we don't understand that his boundaries are there for protection from all of these things I was just leading us through and not to somehow restrain you. Are we free to do what we want with our body? Yeah. Technically, yes, you are. But do you want to? And more importantly, guys, what are you free for? It's one thing to have the chains taken away, but now what are you free to now do? There's an, a, a great example that my colleague Nathan Rittenhouse um, gives, and it's of two people jumping out of a plane with parachutes on their backs. So they're, they're kind of falling to the ground with the parachutes on their back, and one of them says, you know what, this parachute is it's so restrictive. So he cuts the strings of the parachute. So he has removed all restraint. 
He's removed all boundaries. He is now completely free to do whatever he wants. But now what is he free for? Removing boundaries is one question. Asking yourself, what are you now free to do with it is another. It isn't just about freedom. I have a friend, lesbian, would call herself an agnostic slash atheist. Agnostic is someone who says, I don't know if there's a God, I don't really think so, maybe we don't ever really know. But we had, we had a lot of great conversations about God. She's totally into talking about it, even though she doesn't believe he's there, but she's totally willing to talk to a Christian who doesn't say, hey, you're gross and disgusting because you're gay. And I think she hadn't encountered that before. So we had, we had a lot of great conversations. And one time we were sitting down for lunch with a friend of mine and his wife. She was a, a I think it was, or a sister, excuse me. And uh, he said to her, he was bold. He said to her, you know, you're an atheist. What does your atheism say about the fact that you're a lesbian? And she looked at him, she goes, well, you know what? It says I'm a mistake. Because I can't reproduce. And from an evolutionary perspective, as an atheist, one of the most important things is what? Survival of the fittest. You need to be able to reproduce to help your species survive. I can't reproduce on my own, therefore my atheism would tell me I'm a mistake. And I recognize that's a problem with my worldview. She was honest. And he looks at her as a Christian and says, my friend, as a Christian, I can tell you, you are not a mistake. But you are a beautiful creation created in the image of God. See, a lot of times Christians get the bad rap when it comes to this, but Christianity has the highest view of the individual and even someone who says, I am same-sex attracted, I am gay, I am lesbian, I am transgender. Christianity has the highest view of the value of a person, no matter how they identify themselves. In atheism, you're a mistake. In Islam, they kill you. And Christians are the one who get the bad rap. Because nobody thinks about what atheism truly says about the value of somebody who is same-sex attracted. So Christianity says this. It talks about what marriage is. And see, for some people, marriage is this idea of companionship. I really love you. I really feel good around you. You give me, I just have really good, warm, fuzzy butterflies and emotions. And therefore, I marry kind of out of an intense emotional connection. My needs are met and fulfilled by you. But I think the Bible talks about it on an even greater level. Because it talks about it as a uniting of one flesh. It is a heart, mind, spirit, and body union. So marriage is not just an intense emotional experience. The body and physical sexual union is a part of it. And so Matthew 19 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Why is that said in Matthew? What does it mean to be one flesh? Well, marriage means one flesh means that you are one in your purpose and your direction, but it also means that you become one physically. And you can't become one physically when you have the same physical genitalia. So you can't become one flesh. In order to become one flesh, you have to have differences. You become a co-creator with God of other people. Being one with a spouse is important part of marriage within the Christian framework. And because of that, exclusivity, only being married to one person and not multiple people is important. Because you only should be doing that one flesh union with just one other person. You can't become one with 300 different people. And so marriage represents a perfect, immortal, just loving God uniting with imperfect, moral, cruel, sinful people. It's unity and it's diverse, diversity combined. And it's through this lens that Christianity understands what marriage is. 
Christianity understands marriage through the same way the Bible talks about one flesh. Now, a lot of people may say, okay, well, that's where you get your moral system from. That's how you look at this marriage thing. But I look at it different. I'm like, okay, well, how do you look at it? Well, some people say, well, I allow the government to tell me what to do, which is an interesting kind of concept because in America, we are the government because we vote for people to, go, to make decisions that reflect us. Now, that doesn't always work out so well. But in theory, we are the ones who are putting people there to reflect us. So in other words, the government isn't your moral system, you are. You are creating your own moral world and wanting the government to do the same thing that you want. So you'd have to question yourself, how do you know that you're right? You may feel that this thing is wrong today, but two years from now you may grow up a little older and say, hey, actually I think that's completely okay. Morality becomes fluid, you never know what's right, you never know what's wrong, you never know how to live. But what about how we're born? Some people say, well, how you're born should determine how you live. How you're born should let you know what's right or wrong. If you're born a certain way, that should be your direction. That should give you insight. But this is interesting because I see a lot of parents in here. And I bet you, and I won't ask them to, if I asked them to raise their hand, I said, how many of you had children who were born as stubborn little children? And what did the parents do? I see some parents raising your hand. Put your hands down. And what did the parents do? They changed the stubbornness. They worked hard to say, even though you are born stubborn, this is not the way that you are to live. In other words, what parents were saying is, you know what? Just because you're born a certain way doesn't mean it's right. We're all born in some kind of way. And the whole role of the parent is to help discipline us and direct us in the way that we should go. Now, if you have a child that's born very kind, do you discipline them into being mean? No. Why do you discipline the stubborn child but not the nice one? Because there is a, a right and wrong that parents feel exists. And they feel kindness is right, stubbornness is wrong. Therefore, I'm going to punish the stubbornness and acknowledge and encourage the kindness. In other words, how we're born, guys, doesn't give us any inclination as to what's right or wrong. And you see this with kids all the time. Two-year-old is playing with another two-year-old and one two-year-old has this toy and they're enjoying this toy and the other two-year-old says, I want that toy. So they take the toy and they run off. The first two-year-old gets mad and what do they do? They run after the second two-year-old and they bite them. This is what I feel, this is the way I am, this is what I wanna do. Not the way to live. How about, some people say, well there's consequences, right? There's consequences that help us determine, or the outcomes help us determine what's right or wrong. So, for example, um, some people I talk to will say, well, I don't think rape is good. I don't believe in God, so I think rape is not good because it doesn't have good consequences. It doesn't have a good outcome. So because it doesn't have a good outcome, I will say it's not, not a good thing. So let's play around with this idea. If we determine what's right or wrong based on the outcome, let's play around with this idea. Say a young 15-year-old is walking home from school when sadly she is raped and becomes pregnant. Her family wants her to have an abortion, but her mother says no. Her family's afraid that, that she can't raise this child. Her mother says no, she has to have this baby. So she ends up having this baby, raises the child through uh, elementary, middle school, high school, and eventually university. And after university, this child becomes a doctor. And after several years as a doctor, they find the cure for cancer and are able to save the lives of thousands of people. So based on that, based on just that little story, what do we ask ourselves? Was that rape okay? If we're using the outcomes to tell us whether what something's right or wrong, was that rape okay? What's interesting is based off of that story, if you're using the outcomes, you might say the rape was okay, the fact that she didn't have abortion was okay, so yeah, I guess the rape was good. You see how it's problematic with that? Number one, we don't use outcomes to determine right or wrong. We don't say, well, it doesn't seem like it's causing any harm, it doesn't seem like it's hurting anybody, therefore it must be okay. We don't use that kind of a standard. Same thing with the two-year-old. 
We don't let a two-year-old live life off of their emotions, which leads me to the final way that we generally, I should say there's probably many more, but generally way in which people come to this idea of how they make decisions. And this is the number one way we do it in this country. We let our feelings tell us what to do. Our feelings determine what's right or wrong. Our feelings let us know how we should live. Our feelings are our guideline. The problem is, guys, any psychologist will tell you your feelings can be wrong. How many of you remember the story of Rachel Dolezal? Rachel, if you, if you may or may not, Rachel was an interesting woman. She is an interesting woman. She's still alive. Rachel was head of the NAACP for the Seattle area. And for, she was married to a black man and for years gave people the impression that she was a black female. And her parents one day exposed her with this picture of her as a teenager with blonde hair and blue eyes and said she is not black at all. And everybody went crazy because she's been posing as a black woman for years even though she is full on white. And you know what Rachel said when they, when they called her out? She didn't apologize. She says, but I feel black. And my kids, their father's black, so they're black, and so I'm, I'm a mother of black kids, so I feel that way, so therefore I'm black. I relate better to the black community, therefore I'm black. And people mocked her, she lost her job, they ridiculed her, why? Because they said, your feelings are telling you something that's not true. There's your feelings and there's reality. And I guarantee you we all suffer from this. Or maybe some of us. We see a spider. And we freak out. Why do we freak out over a spider? Our feelings are telling us to panic, freak out, scream, run the other way. Phobias. Phobias are a classic example of how your feelings are misleading to you. Your feelings tell you to panic when you have nothing to panic about. And so I see in this culture, the number one way in which we determine right or wrong is I live how I feel is okay. I live how I feel I wanna be and we advocate for this. The problem is, once again, we're inconsistent. Because we have an entire criminal justice system, court system, and prison system that says I don't care how you feel. If you do these things, you will be punished. But yet we use our feelings to tell us what to do. And we think our feelings are a guideline. So there's these different ways in which we're trying to figure out what's right or wrong because we don't like what Christianity has to say. We don't like God telling us what's right or wrong. We don't like God giving us insight as to how we should live. A God is telling you, hey, the best way for you to experience romantic Sexual love is in a heterosexual marriage, not heterosexually before, heterosexually in marriage. And we say, but how dare you? You don't know me, God. You, don't, you need to catch up with the times. It's 2018, there's no harm in this. I feel good, I like this. There's good outcomes. A lot of times our society frames the issue as heterosexual versus homosexuality. That's not how the Bible sees it. It's not heterosexual, it's homosexuality. It is heterosexual, it is romantic sex in marriage and anything else is wrong. Heterosexual sex in marriage and anything else is wrong. There's one way and everything else is wrong, no matter how you do it. It isn't heterosexual versus homosexual, we can get heterosexual wrong. Adultery is not okay. Open marriages are not okay within the Christian perspective. We say, but God, you don't understand God. Really? If God made you, and he knows the best way in which he designed you to function, don't you think it's his responsibility to tell you? Imagine if I had a four-year-old daughter and I'm, in, I'm cooking over a gas stove in the kitchen and she walks over and she's like, ooh, blue flame, that looks so cool. And reaches her hand, I stand there and I watch her, she reaches her hand up and she grabs right onto that fire the best way she can. And I stand there and I don't tell her, why? Because I want her to be free. Freedom from rules and boundaries. Free to go with what her emotions tell her. What would you say about me? 
You were a cruel mother. You knew what could help her, and you didn't tell her. That's cruel. And so what Christianity does is God says, let me tell you the best way in which you are designed to function. You can experience sex in a variety of different ways, but it will never be in the right way, in the best way in which I have designed for you to live. It's not meant to be oppressive. It's meant to help liberate you, actually. It's meant to give you freedom, to teach you how to live freely within a system of boundaries. Because your emotions get it wrong, guys. I know we like to think we can do it, but we can't. We just can't do it. And so we say things like, well, love is love. All you need is love. Love is good. It is good. But love can be bad, too. I could love somebody else's husband. I could love a child. I could love a sibling. Just because you love doesn't mean it's good. Love can be done badly too. And here's the interesting thing. Because we live in the West in an individual mindset, we assume that when the Bible talks about love, it's talking about me. It's all about me. But what's interesting, if you read what the Bible says love is, it says it's patient. Who are you patient with, yourself? No, somebody else. It says love is kind. Who are you kind with, yourself? No, somebody else. It says it's not arrogant, which is how are you treating other people? It is not dishonoring, which is how are you treating other people? In other words, there is a heavy focus on the fact that love is not just about you. It's about what you do in relationship to other people and how you treat other people. What is the best option for somebody else? And this is why we get this so wrong in our individualistic culture when it comes to love. Because we say love is all about what I want, but what about what is best for us as a culture? What about what is best for us as a society? What about what is best for the other person? That needs to be considered as well. Because people love the wrong things, guys. I was reading an article of a woman, I think she's in England, who was in love with chandeliers. And her house is full of chandeliers, glass chandeliers. And she is going to marry one. She puts one in the bed with her, I think, and she kisses them. She's in love with chandeliers. We can love the wrong thing. Love isn't just love. It's not always good. And so we get so confused in our society as to what romantic love is. And it's the highest goal. It's the best way to be human. But actually, is it? I'm a single person. Jesus was single. Paul was single. Is Jesus less of a person because he didn't experience sex? Is Paul less of a person? Are they somehow less human? Our society has lied to you and told you that to be fully human and fully real, you have to experience this particular thing. That's not true. Society gets things wrong all the time. Newsflash, guys, they're not always right. You can't trust everything you watch on YouTube or everything you read on Google. Oswald Chambers has a beautiful quote about how we have to live in a way in which Jesus is truly enough for us all. We don't need to look for another human being to bring us fulfillment. And if we feel like we cannot find fulfillment with just God, then Jesus isn't enough. If you think you need another human being to be fulfilled in life, then Jesus isn't enough. And what kind of God is that anyways then? And so he says this. He says, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. The cost of your natural life is not just one or two things, but everything. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That is, he must deny his right to himself, and he must realize who Jesus Christ is before he brings himself to do it. Beware of refusing to go to the funeral of your own independence. In other words, as a Christian, your life now belongs to God. And you know what? Bury your independent, I do what I want with my life idea. Because he calls so many of us to pay a cost. That until we are in a marriage heterosexually, you abstain. Whether you are same-sex attracted or not, it doesn't matter. He encourages us and he tells us, your life is now mine. And so abstain from these things. We're so used to easy Christianity in our culture 
that we don't understand the idea of cost. God would actually ask me to be uncomfortable for him. A.W. Tozer said something. I read this and it was so profound to me and I want to share with you. Because so many of us think that it's impossible that God would ask something difficult of us. But A.W. Tozer says, such doctrine as this does not find much sympathy among Christians in those soft and carnal days. We tend to think of Christianity as a painless system by which we can escape the penalty of past sins and attain to heaven at last. The flaming desire to be rid of every unholy thing and to put on the likeness of Christ at any cost is not often found among us. We expect to enter the everlasting kingdom of our Father and to sit down around the table with sages and saints and martyrs and through the grace of God, maybe we shall. But for the most of us, it could prove an embarrassing experience. Because our experience might be the silence of the untried soldier in the presence of the battle-hardened heroes who have fought the fight and won the victory and who have scars to prove that they were present when the battle was joined. God asks that his will is more important than ours, friends. And what gets me through the day is not like, oh my goodness, maybe one day I'll get married. I would love to get married one day, but that's not what brings me the joy. Hope is not found, and it's not made real in the presence of another person, guys. Hope is made real in the presence of God. It's not found in another person. Two final thoughts, and I want to turn over to question and answer. One of the things that I hear people saying One of the things I want us to think about as a society, as a culture, is when we advocate for relationships that are same sex, marriages that are same sex, what are we saying about the other person that's not in the marriage? Let me make that clear. Let's say we advocate for two women to get married. What are we now saying about the importance of men in our society when it comes to raising our children. Statistics have shown us, many, many, many statistics over generations have shown us the impact on a child when their father is not in the home. They do worse in school, more likely to do drugs and alcohol, more likely to end up in prison, more likely to be violent. These are not anything new. These are just sociological experiments that show us the importance of a father in his home. And one of the things that concerns me is that now we're pushing men to the side. I don't need you to raise a child. I was raised by a single mother. I think women can do a great job, but we will never replace a man. And the same thing with girls. When a girl has a father in the household, men, you may not know this, but a lot of times we grow up wanting to marry a man just like our dads. Men, you are important in our society. And when we say the same thing about two gay men getting married, what are we saying about you moms? That children don't need you. They can grow up just fine without you. You really are insignificant. Is that what you get when you read the Bible? That God is saying, men, you aren't important. Fathers, you aren't important. Mothers, you aren't important. In fact, what I see in Proverbs is it says, listen, my son, to your father's instruction. And do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. I think both men and women are important for our society. It's important for us to have both men and women raising children in the home for the benefit of our society as a whole. And one final thought, and then I will give you a few minutes for question and answer. You're probably familiar with the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. I won't go through it all. But this story has always intrigued me. This woman is brought to Jesus. She's caught in the act of adultery. The religious people only bring her, which is interesting because usually when you are in an adulterous relationship, there's a guy too. But anyways, they bring this woman to Jesus. And who knows what she looked like? She could have been disheveled. She could have been naked. She could have been in torn clothing. Who knows what she looked like? But they're saying to her, look what she's done. She's filthy. She's dirty. She's been sexually immoral. She's garbage, Jesus. The law says that she should be killed. What do you want us to do with her? And I won't go through the whole story, but, it's, but, but basically what Jesus does is he stands up for her as a woman of value. Yeah, I know she's done wrong, but she's still important to me. I know she's done, hasn't been sexually pure, but she's still important to me. 
and he stands up for her. And he takes on her shame, he takes on her embarrassment, he takes on her humiliation, because those religious leaders end up leaving the conversation, and they leave not just angry with her, but now they're angry with Jesus. He stood up for her so much that they became angry with him. And in a, in a group this large, I know that there's people who haven't been as sexually pure as they wanna be. I know there's people in here who are same-sex attracted, who identify as lesbian or gay or bisexual. Newsflash, guys, none of us are sexually pure. None of us have gotten it right. And when I, when I was a teenager and I look at that story, for whatever reason, what I saw was not just a woman caught in the act of adultery in front of Jesus. What I saw was a person who was a lesbian or who was gay, who the Christian society threw at Jesus' feet and said, look at them, they're a piece of filth. And I don't know why I always read that story that way, but there was something about me that I would just read that and I would say, but look how Jesus would say, but they're important to me. But I love them. Yeah, 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 yeah I, I get that they've done wrong. And I would make one distinction here. I think the wrong, the wrong is in the action, not in the attraction. I think if you're same-sex attracted, I don't think that's the sin. I think the sin is when we begin to act on our attractions. I just want to make that clear distinction. I have many friends who are same-sex attracted and are living lives of celibacy because of it. But I think Jesus would look down at that person and at every one of us who belongs at his feet and say, but you are important to me. Don't try and change the rules on sexuality because you think it makes it easier. Rather, embrace the ability to be a person who is broken before Jesus' feet and allows him to pick them up. Allows him to change them. Allow yourself to be a person who experiences comfort and healing and restoration and being sustained through loneliness with Jesus. Desires, guys, will very rarely ever be fulfilled. But remember that your freedom isn't just about being free from something or rules and limitations, but it's about being free to live as you ought to. And how should you live in response? I've saved you a few minutes for question and answers. And I know there's a lot of you, and some of you are way in the back, so I may not hear your, your questions. Um, but if you want to raise your hand, I'm happy to um, answer some of your questions. And I will also be here for a few minutes afterwards that you can also, if you think it's too personal to shout out, you're welcome to just come up to me afterwards and ask the question as well. Now, I will say the first question is always the hardest. Let's skip the first and go to the fourth. Who has the fourth question of today? Now that we got the first three out the way. I see a gentleman here. I can't go out with this mic because it's acting funny. But Would you mind coming up here? I'm so sorry to do it to you. It's just the challenges of being outside. Because I can't humiliate, humiliate you enough by giving you a microphone to ask the first question on sexuality. Well done. Give him a hand clap. Well done to be the first one to do that. So my cousin is from uh, uh, Washington, D.C. And um, oh, my cousin is from Washington, D.C. And it's kind of a politically correct area that he lives in. And a lot of times we get into conversations about all these different topics. And a lot of times he's very defensive about it. Um, so I was just wanting to know, like, when someone brings up a topic like this with someone that's like that, how do you respond? Like, yeah. what is your side supposed to do? Um, Thank you. That was a great question. You know, guys, one of the tragedy of our culture right now, and it's a serious, it's not just about this question, it's about a lot of things, is if we have differing views on something, I'm going to be angry with you if you talk to me about your side. Like, we, we have lost the ability to discuss things when we disagree. And it's a beautiful thing. I love talking to atheists because it helps me to better understand my position and them. But we've lost the ability to have good, healthy discourse. So my advice to this gentleman who said, how do I, when this person is, is, is angry or upset or it's just hostile, how do I speak to them? Well, I guess I would say, one of the things that one of my friends said to me is she was afraid I was going to yell at her. 
she was afraid that because she was gay and I was a Christian, that I was going to yell at her. And I was going to tell her that she was disgusting and all these things because that was her experience with Christians. Sorry, guys. We as a church have gotten this wrong in the past, and there's a lot of scars. And when we mess up and somebody calls us out, it is okay to say, I'm sorry. God has never asked us to apologize for sin. Or to, to, sorry, God has never asked us to make excuses for sin. We apologize for sin. And so I let her know, I'm not going to yell at you. I'm happy to chat. And I try to bring her defenses down. If you want to talk to this individual, but they don't want to talk to you, then I would ask them why. What is it that I, why are you angry? Please tell me. Is it, has the church messed up? Has the church done something wrong? Please tell me. I want to know. And let them tell you. And if they've been treated wrong in some way, then you apologize for it. And you say that's not okay. You shouldn't have been taught that way. So let me actually tell you what Jesus is like. Because I can understand why you'd be angry. I would be angry too with Christianity. So let me actually tell you what real Christianity is. So if you still don't want it, that's fine. At least you're rejecting the truth and not the lie. So I would say, tell me why you're angry. What has happened to you? And let them get all that out. And when they see you, just let's shut up. Don't say anything. Just let them talk. Don't, we talk too much. Let them talk. Let them share their stories. Let them share their experiences. And be a human. If they're hurting, hurt with them. If they're crying, cry with them. And then say, how can I, as a person, now continue this relationship with you? How can I talk with you now? And how can you bring them now into Christianity because of what you have, because the fact that their defenses are now down and you're able to speak to them more about where the Christian perspective is. Hopefully that helps you in some way. If not, come back up to me. Yes, come here, my friend. I see all these hands. Liberty, you look too young to be a liberty. So you said that the wrong was in the action, not the infraction. But the Bible says that if you look at a woman with lust, that you have already committed the sin in your heart. So how do those, they kind of contradict each other. Great. Good, good, good question. Absolutely. He's absolutely right. The Bible says if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And if you have hatred towards your brother, you've already committed adultery in your heart. I think there's a difference between lusting. I don't think lusting is like, oh, that person's handsome. I think lusting is a much stronger desire than that. I think lusting goes to another level than just, hey, I think that person is really attractive. I think lust is another level where it's sinful. I think lust itself is sinful because it is coveting something that you probably, and probably in a greater level, a greater des desire, a greater degree than you should have, okay? Whereas, whereas somebody's saying, wow, that person is really handsome, but Lord, you know what? I can't, because this is, this is the thing for um, heterosexuals and homosexuality, both, is you see a married person, boy, they're attractive, but nope, they're off, they're off limits for me because they're married. I don't think that's the sin. I think the sin comes in like, man, I really think they're attractive. Man, maybe I really want to hang out with them. It's dwelling in your mind. It's, it's increasing in its intensity. It's, you, you want to act on it almost. Lust comes with almost a fire and a passion and a furor with it. And so you're absolutely right, my friend. I'm so glad that you raised that. What a smart young man. Because essentially what you're recognizing is that we need to be careful up here. Because it very easily can go from I'm just attracted to now I've crossed the line into lust. So I think that we can cross the line into lust no matter who we are. Once again, it's not a heterosexual, it's homosexual topic. It's all people kind of topic. Thank you for that, that, that point. And same thing I was saying with hatred, right? Hatred's a whole nother level of deep. It's not like, oh, I don't like them, so I'm not gonna talk to them. That's one thing. Hatred is fuming. I want bad things, I can't stand them. I mean, it's a whole nother intensity and level. So thank you, well done on picking that up. I appreciate that. I saw another hand right here. Come up here, my friend. What's your name? Uh, my name's Ethan. Everybody say, hi, Ethan. Hi, Ethan. Say, you're brave, Ethan. Go for it. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I, I know a person who, uh, who is bisexual. Yeah. And I was just wondering how like, you feel, what uh, your opinions on are when a bisexual person is in a relationship with you know, like the opposite gender but they still have that, mm -hmm. those attractions for the same gender. Since, yeah. My goodness, you guys are great thinkers. Thank you, Ethan, for that. How old are you? Um, 15. 15, well done on that question. Thank you. That's a stellar question. So this, Ethan, you might be surprised to know, there's a great website, guys, called livingout.org. I'd encourage you to check it out, livingout.org. 
and there's a, there's a website of Christians who are same-sex attracted. Some of them are married heterosexually and some of them are not, but they share some of their perspectives on there, on it. There are some people who will say, I am, let's take, let's take a man for example, they'll say I'm gay, but yet I'm in love with just this one woman. And you'll meet people who will say, even though I, I have attraction for men, for some reason, it's her I have an attraction for too. And so they're married to her and they have a great relationship. So I don't think there's anything wrong with somebody who's bisexual saying, I, I want to marry heterosexually. I don't think there's anything wrong. And I think there's a lot of people who are in that position. Um, I, think, I think I would encourage you to check out that website, livingout.org, and taking a look at it, because you'll see a lot of stories of people who are in those situations and are able to have really good, really wholesome and happy marriages um, with somebody of the opposite sex that they have, that they're attracted to as well. So thank you. That's a stellar question. All right, who was the next one? Oh, right in front of me. What's your name? Everybody say, hi, Karen. Okay, hold on a second, not okay. Let's try that again. Say, hi, Cameron. Say, I like this shirt. It says Creation Festival, you know you can't read it. Okay, go ahead. So last week, the, or not last week, but a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court ruled on that case that, um, that the baker was not required to make the cake for a gay wedding. So do you think that that was the right decision, or does that reflect on us that we're hateful of that community? Or we no. just want to know what you think Great. about it. Great, so who has the next question? Um, <laughs> all right, because we don't want to give me the easy ones, right? We want to ask, because like, I've never had that question before, and now I have this one, like, you know, some people think that doing Q&A with teenagers is actually easier than with adults. I will tell you it's much harder. <laughs> teenagers ask questions, I'm like, dog, I have not even thought about that. So I'm not surprised that these questions from these teenagers are coming up because this is classic, where they think of things so good. I would say this, my friend. I would say the Christian church is divided on this. It, it just is. I think there's people who will say, guys, it's a cake. And the issue wasn't that he was okay to bake the cake for them. His issue was, I'm not going to put, um, like, your names on it, like, in marriage or something like that. Or maybe it was two men on there. It was that part that he wasn't going to do. Because if you can buy any cake you want in here, he wasn't going to design. I think it was more the design that he was issue having issue with. So I think the church is divided on that. Here is my advice to you guys. There's going to be a lot of issues where you're like, I don't really know where to go. If, if I have any hockey players in here, I always think of, I'm a hockey player, I always think of straddling the blue line. Which means you're not really offsides or onsides. You're kind of in the middle. You're not sure which way to go. There's a lot of issues in here that are going to be tough and that we have to wrestle with ourselves. So what I would say is this. Jesus tells us, love Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as, our, as yourself. What's the best way in which you can love a neighbor? Still represent Christ. Still hold to your convictions about Christ. And then you carry that out and say, Lord, if I am wrong in this, then you come find me and you let me know. And I think that's the way we're going to have to approach some of these things. Because I don't think Christianity is always going to be uniform on something like that. Some Christians will say, guys, it's a cake. Just make it. Others will say, but you, don't, you shouldn't be put in a position where you have to make something for a situation you disagree with. And so I think it's going to come down to, sorry, I mean all this. I think it's going to come down to how do you feel, where do you feel God is directing you? In these situations and um, and then you hold fast and you stay listening to God if he says nope you're not on the right track then you go on the track that he wants you to be on and I think so there's this one I mean I think there's a there's a cake one and then there's I mean it could be a wedding dress kind of situation one day I mean there's all kind of things that could arise um, I know people say you shouldn't go to a gay wedding and then I know somebody who did go to a gay wedding under the condition that he was able to pray over the crowd and they said that's fine so he went to the wedding at the reception. They gave him the microphone, and he was able to pray over the entire audience. He says, for me, that looked like an opportunity because I could share the gospel message in that whole prayer. For him, he's like, that looked like an opportunity. Other people say, yes, but you're, you're saying that you accept this behavior. I think, I think what we have to do with a lot of these things is try our best to say, God, I want to be sensitive to you, but I want to love my neighbor, but I will not compromise on what you want, what you want me to do. And how can I best walk that line under your guidance? I think God is a lot more gracious than maybe we realize if we're truly trying to live in the way that he wants. I guess I should do one more question, and then I should probably let you guys go. Come on up here. Hi, I'm Laurel. 
Um, so my friend actually just asked me this question. I had no idea how to answer okay. it. Oh, um, great. <laughs> but in a Christ-centered heterosexual relationship, um, lust, on the subject of lust, yeah. um, naturally we're not supposed to lust after someone who's not our own. Um, but in a Christ-centered heterosexual relationship, where is the line between lust and just finding that person attractive? Because we're told, like, we are going to desire that. So you mean your spouse attractive? Like, what, can you lust after your spouse? Oh, a dating relationship. How can you go between, oh, that's great. Are you a teenager? Oh, I'll tell you, these teenagers have their questions. Okay, I've never thought about that. So how can you make sure that your dating relationship is just love and it's not lust with the other person? All right, thank you, Laura, I appreciate that. I would say this, guys, we are so good at creating idols in general, okay? Part of being created in the, in the image of God is that all of humanity desires to worship something, which is why as you travel around the world, you see religions of all sorts. You never go into the woods, in a remote part of the woods, and discover an atheist community, right? We're always worshiping something because we are created to worship our creator. So I think it is very easy for us to go from love to lust in any kind of thing, not just in a relationship. So I guess I would say this. If you feel like that person that, that you are dating or engaged to is becoming an idol, something that, when I think of an idol, I think of something that um, I elevate really high or something that I, in a sense, worship or bow down to or something that I see as perfection or something that I see that can answer or solve all problems. In other words, I'm really raising this up to a, to a beyond human kind of a level. Somebody gave me an interesting illustration the other day. They said, you know, when you're holding up an idol, if that idol was to break, it falls on you. It breaks on you. And if you hold up another person to an idol position, and then they act like a normal person does, which is we mess up, then it's devastating because that idol falls and crashes right on you. So I guess I would say, how is it that they view the other person? Are they viewing this as a person who, who they're excited to do life with? Or they're excited to be in this relationship with? Or are they looking at this person to answer and solve all of their problems, to be their savior, to be they can't live or breathe without them? Anything they're putting to a level that is beyond what humans can do, I would say might be an issue when it comes, might be an idol now. Okay, or so lusting. Yeah, thank you so much. That's a great question. I will be here. I feel like I gotta let you go. I will be here. Feel free to come talk to me. Thank you guys.